Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Good morning, LifePoint. Today we continue in our series uh, entitled The Messiah's Mission on Matthew chapters 8 through 10. Uh, We have walked through chapter 8 and completed that at this point. And this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. So I would like to turn your attention to a passage of scripture found in Matthew 9 verses 1 through 8. Matthew 9, 1 through 8. Back in the 19th century, there was a British politician by the name of Lord Acton. And Lord Acton famously said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, most of us have probably heard that quote or something very similar to it. It expresses a well-known sentiment that is shared very widely in our culture. Many of us, if not most of us, have a natural suspicion of people with a lot of authority. Like if I I asked you to imagine, to, to conjure in your mind the idea of a corrupt CEO who is found guilty of dumping toxic waste into a river where the village children go to get their drinking water. It wouldn't be a stretch for you to imagine a person like that. It it wouldn't be a stretch for your imagination. You would understand that because we have a natural distrust of authority, of figures of authority. Well, today, I want us to look, by contrast, at an authority that we can trust. An authority that we can trust. It is, of course, the authority of Jesus Christ. His authority is unlike any other. It is an authority that we can trust. So let's look at Matthew 9. We'll begin in verse 1 and we'll read through verse 8. Matthew writes, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins he then said to the paralytic rise pick up your bed and go home and he rose and went home when the crowd saw it they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Thanks be to God for his word this morning. 
Well, in this story, Jesus demonstrates his authority in an undeniable way. You might say that his authority is the dominant theme of this passage of Scripture, and you would be right about that. I mean, Jesus does things that only someone with authority can do. Jesus says things that only someone with authority can say. And Matthew wants his audience to see this. This is why throughout the entirety of chapter 8, the chapter that we've just looked at in the last couple of weeks, throughout the entirety of that chapter, Matthew portrays Jesus as someone who has authority. This is why he shows Jesus doing things like casting demons, casting evil spirits out of people. Jesus heals the sick. He, he exercises authority over disease and sickness. Jesus exercises authority over the forces of nature by calming the storm. This is what Matthew wants his audience to see. He is, he is making a case for the claim that is made at the conclusion of his gospel account in chapter 28, where it says that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus Christ. And if all authority belongs to Jesus, then Jesus has authority even to forgive. And in this story, we're being invited to consider what that means. By forgiving the sins of the paralytic, it reveals that there is something unique about the nature and character of Jesus Christ. That's Matthew's whole point with this story. So here's what I want us to see today. This is what I want us to walk away with, that Christians trust in Jesus to use his authority for our good and his glory. Christians trust in Jesus to use his authority for our good and his glory. In Jesus, we encounter someone who has ultimate authority. He has unrivaled, unparalleled authority. And yet he uses that authority to meet the needs of anyone who will come to him in faith. So if you come to Jesus today and if you come to him recognizing your need for him, you can be confident that he will not refuse you. He will not turn you away, but he will receive you and he will embrace you in order to meet that need that you bring to him. And this is what we see at the start of this passage. In verse 1, we see Jesus traveling from the country of the Gadarenes. And it says that he came to his own city. This is the city of Capernaum. That's where Jesus was living at this point in his earthly ministry. Now, if you look back at the end of chapter 8, you see that things did not end well in the, the region of the Gadarenes. In Gadara, things did not end well. This is what John Goings preached about. Last week in Gadara, Jesus was pretty much forced out of town. He met a demon-possessed man, and he, he, he cast the demons out of the man, and the demons left him, and they entered a herd of pigs. And when this happened, the pigs ran off a cliff, and they died. And the people in Gadara are so freaked out by this that they, they beg Jesus to leave. They drive him out of town. Jesus, we don't want any more of this kind of thing. We don't want any more trouble. Get out of here and go back to where you came from, they tell him. 
But whereas the gatherings forced Jesus out, this group of people that he encounters in Capernaum seek him out. One group of people begs Jesus to leave while the other brings to him their needy friend, a paralytic. The gatherings were not ready for the authority of Jesus, and so they rejected him. But this group of friends in Capernaum desired the authority of Jesus, and so they came seeking him. You see what Matthew is doing here. He is, he is setting up a contrast between those who reject the Messiah's authority and those who receive the Messiah's authority. And this contrast is something that's going to come out more as we explore this passage at the beginning of chapter 9. We'll talk about it more in a minute. But first, let's look at how Jesus responds. Let's look at how he responds to the paralytic. You can see the goodness of his heart here. It's evident in his response. Jesus says to him, when he saw their faith, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. I've got two points I want to make this morning about this text. Here's the first one. Jesus identifies our greatest need so that he can meet it. Jesus identifies our greatest need so that he can meet it. As I was thinking about this passage, I asked why did these people bring the paralytic to Jesus? Why were they bringing him to Jesus? What did they expect? The only thing mentioned in the text is the man's physical condition. He was in a state of paralysis. So this suggests, I think, that, that most likely they were coming to Jesus with an expectation of physical healing. And why shouldn't they? I mean, Jesus had developed a reputation as a powerful healer. People from all over the region of Galilee were coming to Jesus and seeking him out with an expectation of a miraculous healing. So these this group in Capernaum, they did what any reasonable person would do. They saw a friend in need, and they saw in Jesus a way for that need to be met. But here's the thing. Jesus knew what this, great, this man's greatest need was. He knew that his greatest need was not physical. Often, there is a difference between what we think we need from Jesus and what we really need most from him. I don't know if you've noticed this, but, but people don't see things for what they really are. We don't always have a, a firm grasp on reality. It's sort of a defect of our nature that we don't always have the firmest grasp on reality. But Jesus always does. He always sees things for what they truly are. And he sees this man, this paralytic, for who he truly is is that at root, he is a sinner in need of a savior. More than anything, this man needs to be forgiven and reconciled to God. And the forgiveness that this man receives from Jesus is infinitely more precious than anything else that we could ever conceive of in our wildest imaginations. The man's physical need was evident to be sure. I don't want to downplay that. I, I don't want to take anything away from that. 
Some of you have a physical need that you bring to the Lord today, and that's important. But the man's physical need was eclipsed by his spiritual need. The man's eternal destiny needed to be changed, and changed it was. In an instant, Jesus changed it. That's the power of God's forgiveness, friends. I wonder what you think. I wonder what you think about this. I wonder how it hits you today. In the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul saw himself as the chief of sinners, as the the foremost of sinners. Do you see yourself this way? Above all else, do you see yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior who has the authority to forgive you? When was the last time you really stopped and thought about that? This is so crucial for us to get this morning because its implications for our lives are virtually endless. I want to offer a key insight to you this morning. How you apply God's forgiveness defines how you live. How you apply God's forgiveness defines how you live. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ will only impact your life to the extent that you view yourself above all else as a sinner who is forgiven by God in Christ. You and I, we must see God's forgiveness as our greatest need. And we must see our identity in light of His forgiveness. The Word of Christ must be the defining reality of our lives. Everything that we are, everything that we think and say and do, everything that we are about must be summed up by His authoritative declaration over us. Take heart, my son. Take heart, my daughter. Your sins are forgiven. Maybe you need to receive that word for the first time in your life today. Maybe you've never placed your trust fully in Jesus. Maybe something other than his forgiveness has defined your life up until now. But you know that in this moment, he is calling you to repent and believe the gospel and be saved from your sin. That's why the body of Jesus was broken on the cross for you. That's why his blood was shed. He suffered and died to meet your greatest need. He came into the world to save sinners. And that's dawning on you for the first time in your life. It's because the Spirit is speaking to you now. He's calling you. So don't delay in responding to him. Don't wait until you can clean yourself up enough to be more presentable to him. No, come now. Come just as you are and hear Jesus Declare over you. Let your first encounter with his authority be his declaration of forgiveness declared over your life. Take heart. Your sins are forgiven. When we receive this declaration, we receive it as being decisive for our lives. It cannot be changed. It cannot be revoked. It is a once and for all declaration. Jesus doesn't change his mind. He's not having second thoughts about you. 
You don't wear out your welcome with him. And his heart of forgiveness, I want you to get this this morning, his heart of forgiveness toward you does not fluctuate based on how you feel about yourself at the moment. I've heard people say things like, you know, I know God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. I can't forgive myself for the things I've done. And if you knew how badly I've messed up, if you knew how much I've hurt people, you would agree with me that I can't forgive myself. Now, I don't want to minimize sin. And I don't want to take anything away from that. But I also want to ask at the same time and push back on that and say, who are you to disagree with God? Who are you to say something about yourself, anything other than what he says about you? Who are you to do that? The authority to declare you forgiven is his alone. It belongs to him and only him. And so once he has said that you are forgiven, that is the final word on the matter. Your role is not to question what that means. It's not to speculate but it's to receive it by faith so that you can walk in it today and every day and so that it can become the defining reality of your life. That's the first point I want to make, that Jesus identifies our greatest need so that he can meet it. And it's our spiritual need, our need for forgiveness. It's our need for that forgiveness to become the defining reality of our lives. Once that happens, once God's forgiveness defines us, it impacts our everyday life in a real way. And that's exactly what I want to look at next. So here's the second point I want to make. That Jesus is worthy of total obedience. Jesus is worthy of total obedience. Now I know when you hear that, what you might be thinking. Okay, yeah, well, duh. Like I grew up in Sunday school. I've only heard that a million times. I know I'm supposed to obey Jesus. I get that response a little bit. I mean, this is Christianity 101 kind of stuff. But I think that if we look more closely at this passage of Scripture, we see that there might be a little more to it than we assume. I mean, look at it closely here. Jesus forgives this guy. He, he uses his authority to declare the paralytic decisively made right with God. And when Jesus does this, the situation escalates. I mean, tensions are ratcheted up immediately. When Jesus forgives him, I imagine it being followed by this sort of like record scratch sound effect. You know, the room falls silent and everyone's like, did he just, did he just, did he say that for real? Like, did those words come out of his mouth? Did he really just say what I think he said? There's no one in the moment who doesn't have a response. I mean, Jesus exposes the heart of every person who is witnessing this. And that's what his authority does, friends. It demands a response for us. You can't not respond to the authority of Jesus. You can't not respond to him. You have to do something with what he says and who he is. And there are three main responses that emerge in this story. So I want to look at each of these responses. The first response is the response of offense. It's the response of being offended by Jesus. This comes from the scribes in verse 3. 
So the scribes are experts in the Jewish law. They know the law of Moses down to a T. They have it. They understand it. They've memorized it. So naturally, they have some significant misgivings about the extent of the authority of Jesus. To them, Jesus, when he declares forgiveness over this man, they can't help but bristle. I mean, they, they to them, Jesus is crossing the line. He has just crossed a line here. Claiming to have the authority to forgive sins is taking things way too far. I mean, only God can forgive sins. So who does Jesus think he is? I mean, who is he claiming to be? Jesus, are you claiming to be God? Are you claiming to share authority with God? Well, that's blasphemy. To the scribes, this is blasphemy of the highest order. And this is, blasphemy is a serious thing. I mean, this is why the law of Israel prescribes the death penalty for the crime of blasphemy. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16 says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. doesn't matter who you are. When he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. This is severe stuff. This is serious. You can see why this is so controversial. But here's the thing. It's only controversial for the scribes because they don't recognize Jesus for who he really is. They're blinded to the true nature of his authority. This is a spiritual blindness. The Apostle Paul, I'll return to him for a second. He says in 2 Corinthians that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is why the scribes are offended. There's a veil over their hearts. Their minds are blinded. They are deceived by the evil one. They are dead in their sins and their trespasses and their unbelief. And Jesus calls them on this. He says, hey, I, I know what you're thinking. You're questioning me. You, you don't think I have the authority to do what I just did. But let me tell you something, scribes. You couldn't be more wrong. You couldn't be more mistaken about that. You couldn't be more deceived. But Jesus doesn't just say something to, him, to them. He doesn't just confront them with words. Jesus demonstrates his authority. He authenticates his authority by healing the man. The man came to Jesus unable to walk. And Jesus not only declares a word of forgiveness over him, he declares a word of healing, instantaneous, miraculous healing. That's the authority of Christ at work. By doing this, Jesus not only shows that the offense of the scribes is unfounded, he shows that the offense of the scribes is downright evil. The scribes are not following the law. The scribes are opposing the kingdom of God with their unbelief. 
Christ exposes that in their hearts, they're not offended by blasphemy. No, they are offended by God's authority. They are offended by the Messiah of God who has come to seek and save that which was lost and whose kingdom has come to reign on earth as it is in heaven. That's the first response, the response of offense. The second response comes immediately after the healing. It's the response of obedience. Response of obedience. Jesus tells the paralytic, get up, get your bed, and go home. And what does the man do? He obeys. He responds to the authority of Christ with direct and total obedience. This is the biblical pattern that is laid out for us as we look at the scriptures when we encounter the authority of God. And when we trust in Him, when we place ourselves by faith underneath His authority, how is that trust demonstrated? It's demonstrated by our obedience. Obedience is the fruit of genuine faith. James 2.18 but someone will say, you have faith, and I have worked. Okay, James says. Go ahead, show me your faith apart from work. Try it. Do it. Show me. You can't. James says, I will show you my faith by my work. What James is saying is that the things we do and the things we don't do demonstrate what we actually believe. You can't. Show your faith. You can't demonstrate your faith apart from action. Just look at the life of Abraham. Abraham was chosen by God. He was called by God to be the one through whom the nations of the earth would be blessed. And toward that end, God made a covenant of blessing and grace with Abraham. But that promise, that covenant relationship, it came with a command. Genesis 12.1 Go from your country to a land that I will show you. And just a few verses later, in 12, verse 4 of Genesis, says, So Abram went. Abraham had faith. It says that he believed God in his heart, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But how is that faith? How is that trust, that belief? How is it demonstrated? It was demonstrated by Abraham's obedience to God's command. And it's the same here with this man in Matthew chapter 9. His faith was demonstrated by his obedience to the authority of Christ. Jesus says, rise, take your bed, and go home. And this is exactly what the man does. And don't miss this today, friends. The man's example is intended to show us that people who have truly encountered the forgiveness of Christ earnestly obey the authority of Christ. Remember, how we apply God's forgiveness to our lives will define how we live each day. And if we're living in light of the forgiveness of God in Christ, our lives will surely be marked by a total obedience. The third response we see is the response of adoration. The response of adoration is, is found in verse 8. Jesus heals the man, and it tells us that the crowds who are standing by and who are watching this were afraid. 
and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. In other words, the people here feared and worshipped. Now, make no mistake, this is a right and true response to the authority of Jesus. When we encounter his authority, we should give him glory. We should sing his praises and magnify his power. He is worthy of our highest praise. That's why we're here at church today. Because Jesus is worthy to be adored. He's worthy of our worship. However, this can come with a real danger. It may surprise you to hear me say that. But it can actually be dangerous to be one of the worshipers in the crowd. Because it's easy to look like you're something, you're, you're part of something, that when it comes down to it, you're not really part of. Here's what I mean. Book of Isaiah 29, verse 13, warns us. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, the prophet says, on God's behalf. So do you see that? What, what we profess with our mouths is not necessarily a reflection of what is in our hearts. There can be a disparity, a discrepancy between what we say and who we actually are. And sooner or later, the authority of Jesus will expose what was in us all along. He will expose what is in our hearts. If you read the gospel accounts more widely, you see this over and over again. I mean, it becomes apparent that the crowds are fickle. Public opinion is subject to change. The fan club that follows Jesus around can turn on him very quickly. John chapter 6 gives us a perfect illustration of this. I mean, it, 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 it's the story of Jesus miraculously feeding thousands of people. He takes the meager ration, a few loaves and fish from a little boy's lunch, and Jesus supernaturally multiplies it and feeds it to thousands of people. And it says that the, the, the multitude was so amazed by what Jesus did. They were so in awe of his miraculous power that they were ready to make him the king of Israel. In fact, it says that they were going to come and take him by force and enthrone him as the king of Israel. But Jesus escapes them. He, he gets out of there somehow, and they can't do it. They can't enthrone him. And so what does Jesus do? He comes back the next day. And he says to the, the people, okay, so you want me to be your king. So if that's what you want, here's what you need to do. You need to eat my flesh. You need to drink my blood. That says that the people, they, they didn't know what to do with that. And so they reacted one by one. It says they turned away from him and they followed him no longer. And so many people walked away that there was just a few left. As long as Jesus is working the miracles, they love him. Oh, Jesus, you're so amazing. But as soon as his authority demands something, as soon as it becomes too costly, they turn their back on Jesus and they walk away and they follow him no more. Now listen, I'm sure in Matthew chapter 9, there were there were people in the crowd that day 
who were genuinely worshiping. I mean, they were genuinely having a response of faith. But listen, I'm just as confident that there were people in the crowd who were in awe of the miracles of Jesus without being surrendered to the authority of Jesus. And in 2,000 years, I don't think things have changed all that much. Anytime Jesus gathers a group of people together, there are different kinds of worshipers. There are the kind of worshiper that it, they're following Jesus in everyday life. They're surrendered to his authority. And then there's the kind of worshiper that's just sort of part of the fan club. And they stick around until something starts to cost them. Until it, it, it demands a little too much to follow Jesus. Until his authority begins to confront them. And when that happens, they'll bail. I'm certain that there are people under the sound of my voice today that claim to love a Jesus that they will not fully obey. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's the test of your worship. That's the test of the love that you profess for Jesus today. It's the test of the songs that you sing to him. You say that you love him, and that's great. But are you obeying him fully? And listen, I need to say this. By obeying Jesus, you can't make him love you any more than he already does. By not obeying him, you can't make him love you any less than he already does. His love for you is not determined by you. It's not a question of his love. It's a question of yours. If you love Jesus as much as you say you do, if you really do adore him, you will trust and obey his authority. So how are you going to respond to the authority of Christ today? Will you be offended? Will you scoff at the idea of someone telling you what to do, and telling you how to run your life? Or maybe you've been a part of the fan club for a while now. You've grown complacent in claiming to love a Jesus that you have no intention of fully obeying. You come to church, you sing the songs, you get a lot out of the sermon. When all is said and done, you walk out of here, you go on your merry way. And what happened in this place, what happened among God's people, what happened in this moment, it has no bearing on your everyday life. And where Christ is calling you to walk in a costly obedience. You're reluctant. You're resisting his authority. Listen, I know that full obedience can be a scary thing. I know that. I mean, it can be, it can mean discomfort. It can mean uncertainty. It can even mean suffering. What it really means is taking up your cross, denying yourself, and following a crucified Messiah. The Bible tells us that we must be crucified with him. That's not an easy thing. But listen, remember what I told you at the beginning. That the authority of Jesus is an authority that you can trust. You can trust his authority. Through his authority, he is inviting you into a deeper relationship, into a more satisfying relationship with him 
That's why he came to save sinners. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he suffered. That's why he bore the wrath of God in your place. So that you could receive his forgiveness to be the defining reality of your life. And so that you could walk in the fullness of obedience to his command. So that you could trust and obey his authority. It's an authority that we can trust now and forever. So let's remember this. Christians trust in Jesus to use his authority for our good and his glory. Will you trust him today? You can do that by making his forgiveness the defining reality of your life. You can do that by walking away from this place with a fresh commitment to obey Jesus totally. Will you do that? Pray with me.